listening to that Jesus podcast. Hey there, it's good to be back with that Jesus podcast. I'm here tonight not with Titus Kipfer, but with a returning guest co-host, sort of, Emily Smucker. How's yes, it going, hi, Emily? Hi, everybody. It's going great. I had a good, cozy day today. It felt like fall has finally sort of arrived. Yes, we were out cutting up firewood, and yesterday we were uh, picking apples, so it's about as stereotypical as you can get. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've so just been less, noticing the first leaves fall. I was just going to say, I've just been noticing the first leaves fall. But So last time you were on, we were talking about fasting, Emily. So how's your fasting going these days? Man, you know, fasting is always kind of miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did one fast after that podcast, and it went pretty much how fast usually go. It was pretty nasty, but had some good times with Jesus and felt like I figured out the things that I needed to figure out in my life. So have you ever, I know there are some negative consequences of fasting, but have you ever um, had yourself pulled over because you were fasting like on the highway? No, I don't do anything. um, Well, one time while I was fasting, I drove my truck into a ditch when I was working in the harvest, (laughs) but I, cause I was just, I don't know. It was just not the greatest day, but um, in general, I try not to fast on any day when I have any important things to do because I'm not always in the best frame of mind. I'm already a daydreamer and then, uh, yeah. Well, you're a, you're definitely a wiser woman than uh, Bilal Ahmed, who um, last month, he was he decided he needed to go 120 miles per hour where he, he lives in greater Manchester. And he was pulled over going 120 miles per hour on the highway across the pond because he was fasting and he wanted to get home to break his fast. That was his explanation to to the gentleman who pulled him over. Okay, I've never done anything like that. Okay. I promise. But I know the impulse sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's good to have you, Emily. I kind of wanted to pull you in because you are an author. And mm-hmm. um, we're having an author on tonight to discuss her book, which is, um, I think it's going to be live by the time this podcast drops and you can order it we'll post those links here uh you wrote the book um the highway me and my earl gray tea and it's kind of funny i kind of connect you and lucy kinsinger our guest together because i don't remember what i was looking for at our local library here in our little town of hayward wisconsin population 2500 and i i must have put in a search term for our library card catalog that's not a card catalog because Everything is digital now. Um, do you remember card catalogs, Emily? Oh, man. Um, like our church library had one, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. On the cutting, cutting edge of 1970, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I searched up Mennonite or Anabaptist or something, and your early book that you wrote, uh, your, uh, how do you say it? eponymously named book, and um, Lucy's book, Lucy Kinsinger's book, which is um, More Than Plain? Anything Plain. but simple. Anything but simple. Yes, those were the two books that came up in our local library, and I was like, "Oh, oh wow. I know." I kind of sort of know Emily a little bit, and I kind of sort of know Lucy a little bit. So now you guys are together more than just on our local library. So, with all that said, um, I'd like to welcome Lucy Kinsinger to that Jesus podcast. Thanks for joining us, Lucy. Hi, it's really good to be here. Yeah. So you um, grew up just down the road from where I live. And I know your family a bit. You now live out east, right? 
Yes, that's right. Uh, about two years ago, in November 2019, I married Ivan, and so now I live in Maryland. Great. And and what do you guys do out in Maryland? Well, Ivan, he um, crop farms and builds mini barns, and I am a mom and a writer. It keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And uh, you are releasing a book. Can you just tell us a little bit about the book and the title? So my book is called Turtle Heart. Unlikely friends with a life-changing bond, and it tells the story of my friendship with an old Ojibwe woman. Her name was Charlene, and it was a life-changing friendship for both of us. Um, I guess going into the friendship, I really wanted to help her to show her Jesus and to be that person for her that drew her closer to God. And interestingly, um, I think she ended up being that person for me in a lot of ways. I think we helped each other, but hmm. she she changed me and just, yeah, like um, opened up my eyes to uh, maybe people with other perspectives and to a bigger God than, or helped to maybe grow my, my perspective of God, my understanding. And so, yeah, that hmm. the Turtle Heart explores our friendship. Great. Yeah, reading it, it it really reads like a memoir. But I was surprised, you know, I first started reading it and your your prose is very laid back and natural and low key, very um, modest. And then there are these like crazy plot twists throughout that just left me hanging. So it's like, this isn't a suspense book, but I couldn't stop reading once I started, which I know sounds really cliche, but did you have a chance to, to start reading it, Emily? I did, actually. So Lucy sent it to me a couple days ago um, so that I could do a blog post about it. And, you know, to, so I was trying to, you know, read a little bit this morning so I would get some idea of what it was about and everything before we did this podcast. And same experience. I was just drawn right in. And so much of it I really identified with. I knew a lot of people... I had a lot of friends in college who reminded me of Charlene and just that really that core thing that you just talked about, Lucy, as far as, you know, you want to help someone and show them the true gospel or whatever, but then they often show you a different perspective of faith and make your own faith so much bigger. I really resonated with that part in your book because I've experienced very similar things. One of the things that stood out to me, Lucy, was how self-aware you were throughout the book. Um, and, and sometimes painfully so. You don't shy away from talking about your, your anger and your frustration and, and sometimes, if you don't mind, your, your pettiness in this relationship. I don't know if I have that much self-awareness. How did you develop that and what made you decide that it was okay to put that self-awareness in a book? I think I just really... The goal, a huge goal in my writing is to write honestly and... Part of that is being self-aware and just putting it out there and not really trying to present yourself as the hero. But, you know, this is this is how I think and these are my struggles and this is mm -hmm. my experience, the way I felt it at the time. I found in my own life and watching subcultures, where we often lack that self-awareness. We kind of go through life thinking that our little bubble is what the world is. And it's so patently not. You just have to, you know get outside of your community, go to Walmart and things are different. But sometimes it seems like we put blinders up and this is what we're experiencing in the moment or what we experienced in our community growing up is what the world is. 
Uh, so how do you how do you break out of that and and if so, what what are some things we can do to grow in that sort of self awareness and seeing ourselves outside of our own culture? Well, I think anytime that we step outside of our box to get to know people from other circles, other backgrounds, other cultures, we will grow in self awareness as a result. I feel like I'm a little bit different than Lucy in the fact that Lucy would look. I don't know, Lucy, if you had people looking at you and thinking you were Amish. I, my guess is that you had that more than I would have had. I had that a little bit. Definitely people thought I was religious, but then I also had some people think I was just very weird and hipster. <laughs> <laughs> did you, probably, probably with you, everyone, did, did you feel like people knew what you were or not really? Yeah, anybody that has any sort of a background about Mennonites would recognize me as a Mennonite, I would say, or a religious person. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you ever get Catholic? I'm not sure. Maybe someone might have asked me if I was a nun. Yes, <laughs> no, I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah. One of my one of the moments I laughed out loud in the book, or at least chuckled out loud, um, was when you described this picture of being invited from the loudspeaker to come up and join the powwow dance and you're wearing a cape dress and a Mennonite cap. And I've, I attend a powwow type ceremony every week at, at my school where I teach. And it's just (laughs) the incongruity of it was quite amusing to me. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting experience. (laughs) Throughout the book, there seems to be like this, this journey that you're on and that, um, Charlene is on there's this tension because like you said you want to come in and share gospel with your friend and yet you don't want to be obnoxious and you don't want to overdo that without giving too much of the book away like how how did you navigate that is that was that actually a tension that you went back and forth on yeah I would say so anytime that I talk about my faith or talk about Jesus or talk about God there's a tension there because is it a fear of being rejected personally as well as Mm. you just want to say it in a nice way so that they'll understand and accept what you're trying to say. Um, And especially at that time in my life, I think there was a big tension because I had this um, kind of a fixation on, you know, in order to start a relationship with God, you need to pray the sinner's prayer and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, accept Jesus as your savior, which we do need to come to Jesus in repentance and he is there for us. That's, that's part of part of the journey of salvation, but but now I would maybe approach it in from a broader perspective. Like you can speak into someone's life about God from almost any place. You don't have to start with a certain moment where they're, you know, where you're like, okay, now I know you're a Christian. Now we can move on. <laughs> you can you can you know talk about Jesus' teachings to anyone without how should I say this. Without, without being, like agenda driven, yeah. or or maybe yes. maybe linear. That's what I'm trying to say. Do you feel like your relationship with Charlene really changed how you go about witnessing now and talking about your faith, or has that not really changed a whole lot? I think, I think it has to a certain extent, or maybe changed how I feel about it. Um. I would say my friendship with Charlene is just well, as well as looking at the teachings of Jesus and how he approached people, um, the kind of things that he said, 
you know, he wasn't, he didn't come across as agenda driven, but he, he was very, um, whole or universal in the way mm, that holistic. he approached. Either of you can speak to this, but like, let's tease this out a little bit. What does it, what does it mean to share our faith holistically or, or in a more organic way, less agenda driven? <laughs> and maybe even by asking that question, I'm, I'm revealing that I do have an agenda. And I, I feel that, that tension too, like kind of, you know, a strategic shyness about saying too much, or maybe it's just shyness masquerading as carefulness. But like, cause ultimately I do want to, you know, go into the world and make disciples and share the love of Jesus. Also, I don't want to be a jerk about it. And also I'm reacting against, for me growing up in an evangelical home, pushing back against the sort of binary of you're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. How do you, how do you guys navigate that? Well, goodness, um, I guess I'll just speak on this. I don't really feel like I have the answer, which is why I'm really curious to know what Lucy has to say and also why I was just very curious about that part of your book and also just very curious about how you navigate that now. Because what what I tend to find is that it's a lot easier for me to have spiritual discussions with people than to actually do a like, I'm going to lead you through a sinner's Mm -hmm. prayer now. And I find those spiritual discussions very good discussions and very like, like I'm doing kingdom work. And yet there's always that kind of guilty part of me that's like, well, should I have led them through a sinner's prayer? You know, like, did I go about things (laughs) the right way? (laughs) I, I think in a lot of ways, um, we need to approach it in a way that is natural. And that doesn't mean that we should never step out of our comfort zone because we should. Mm-hmm. But um, I have done both. I have led people or, or talked to them about Jesus and the forgiveness he offers in the setting of like a jail where people were, where the women, the woman that I talked to was like, yes, I need this. And it felt very natural at that point to, you know, to talk mm-hmm. to her, to explain that this is for you and for her to take that step and, and ask for forgiveness and say she wanted Jesus to come into her life. Whereas then I have other experiences where maybe you're just planting a seed. Maybe you're just telling a story about what God has done for you. And that's fine. You don't, every, every interaction with a person doesn't have to be like, you know, I know how you can be saved and this is what you need to do because we don't know Mm -hmm. everything. God is Mm -hmm. the judge of those things. And a lot of times I found that people are a lot more open to um, hearing your spiritual perspective if it comes across as just a natural conversation about faith and not like a lot of people, they hear the evangelical buzzwords and they just shut down. You know, they're they're not even interested in, in going there. Yeah. I remember, I think it was probably the first time I preached an evangelistic message and I was probably 19 years old, like an explicitly evangelistic message to an unsaved audience. And it was at a, at a gospel mission in, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, and, and so I like worked really hard. I felt like I did a good job. The spirit was guiding me. And at the end, there were a couple guys that came forward at the gospel mission for prayer. But there was one guy that came forward and he came up and he said, you did such a great message. I want to know more. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me how to find salvation. I don't want to go to hell. And it's like, you know, he ticks every single box in a 
weird way, just right, saying the exact same thing. And so I get I, my red flags go up. I'm like, what's going on here? But I'm not going to say, no, we're not going to go through the, you know, the path of salvation with you. So we, we talk for 10 minutes and he says, now I want to pray to receive Christ. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I prayed a, a prayer for salvation that was very ambiguous because I was, whether it was fair or not, I was even at that point a little bit suspicious of what was happening. It, sure enough, after we, I shouldn't say sure enough because I still don't know the guy's heart, but as soon as we're done, without skipping a beat, like right after the amen, he's like, I notice you have really nice shoes on and I don't have any shoes that are nice like that. I need some money to buy shoes because I live outside and it's getting cold. Can you give me some money for shoes? I look down at his shoes. My shoes aren't really that much nicer than his. And I'm like, well, I can give you a bit or let's go talk to the director of the gospel mission and see if I can give him money to buy you some shoes. He's like, no, no, I just need $70 to buy a pair of shoes. And I'm like, dude, I paid $20 for these at Walmart. Um, And so sure enough, I'm like, okay, so we went through that whole process and I can check this box and say, I led this guy to Jesus. But I also think that he was looking for something and he knew how to run the system. So all that to say, I've really stepped back some from the Romans road or sinner's prayer approach to salvation. But sometimes I think that's a bit of a cop out for kind of avoiding the scandal on the stumbling block of the message of Jesus too. And and I feel like Lucy, that's a tension you navigated through and you came to a, a really encouraging place walking through that with Charlene. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a growing, our friendship was a very growing experience for me and yeah, really helped me navigate through that tension. How do you walk through being so obviously part of a subculture, obviously part of a religious tradition um, and, and wanting to present Jesus, but also not like apologizing for your, your faith tradition. One, one of the lines you said, um, I think this was when you were at a birthday party or a powwow or something and talking about your Anishinaabe friends, these people don't know the Mennonites any more than they know the platypus from Australia. I am in uncharted territory. You're so obviously different. You're regardless of what you want to be about sharing Jesus and you know the purity of the gospel. You're kind of representing where you're coming from and what your affiliation is and your tradition. How have you how have you navigated that? Do you find it distracting as you engage with people from other cultures, or is it helpful? So I haven't found it distracting unless. I wanted it to be a distraction. Like if I'm in the mood, like, you know, I just kind of want to hide. I don't want to talk about Jesus. Maybe it could be a distraction. But for the most part, um, I think who I am and my unique Mennonite culture has, has opened doors for me to talk about people, to talk to people about Jesus because people are interested and it gives you, it gives you an opening. So does this mean that we should all become Mennonite? No, <laughs> it means that we should all serve God where he places us and that we don't need to let or be ashamed of our cultures or who we are because we all, all people have cultures. Like I used to think, okay, I'm this subculture. Most Americans are normal, right? Well, mm-hmm. we're all Americans have a unique culture. I mean, yeah, maybe some are pretty mainstream, but I think, I think when we look past the walls of culture, we can, we can 
see that we all have a lot of the same experience of maybe feeling different at times. I'm curious how you, um, when people are asking you questions about the way you dress and everything, I'm curious how you go about differentiating like what is scriptural and what is cultural and what is kind of a mishmash. So for instance, like why do you wear a cape dress? Well, I would maybe say something like, well, it's, I believe, you know, the Bible teaches that we should dress in a way that's discreet and modest. And this is one way that I found of, of being modest. It's one way of practicing modesty. Okay, so you don't even necessarily say, like, this is a, a cultural thing. You more have it as, like, a personal thing when you're explaining it to people? Or like you- well, it's not, it's not really a culture. I mean, not all Mennonites wear cape dresses or whatever. I mean, if this was this specific thing. <laughs> no, it depends. I mean, if, it, if it's a church thing, then I say, well, this is the way my church has decided that, you know, they think it's a good guideline for practicing this biblical teaching. If it's a personal thing, then I would say it's a personal thing. And some things are just cultural. And then I would just say, well, it's just the way we do it. It's just cultural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would you say to somebody who who maybe struggles with, shame might be too strong of a word, but just like the awkwardness, feeling out of place, you're going to college or you're getting a job in a quote-unquote secular environment. What, what would you say to them as they try to navigate that? Either of you. <laughs> I think I would say don't be so conscious. I mean, for myself, when I stopped being self-conscious <laughs> about who I was, as a Mennonite, um, I, it felt like other people stopped being conscious of it too and treated me more like a normal person. Um, mm. Like, kind of the same as when I got braces. I, you know, maybe it's just in my head, but like when I had braces, I was like, oh, everybody's noticing these braces. You know, I can't talk around them. It's terrible. But when I stopped being conscious of it and just was natural and relaxed, it it flowed, you know, and people, other people didn't seem to notice and it, I kind of feel the same way about, you know, my culture and interacting with other people. When I don't view myself as different, when I just interact with them in a natural way, they view me as, yeah, you have you have an interesting background, but that doesn't make you a different person or a different kind of a person than I am. I would say a similar thing to Lucy as far as just people look at you kind of weird at first, but I actually thought it was really interesting in, in your book, Lucy, when you talked about um, people just not necessarily, I think you said something about this, about not necessarily seeing Mennonites as like normal people. And, but then, yeah, it's kind of like they get to know you and you're just a normal person and it's not that weird anymore. Like they see you're not just a weird Mennonite, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, and I think you did a good job illustrating this in your relationship if you're if you're looking for the person, whether they're you know Mennonite or Anishinaabe or or generic American or or whatever it might be, you'll find that connection personally. Um, I also I also don't want to equate an experience for someone who's Mennonite and has this faith tradition with with the long history of oppression that. Um, indigenous people have faced in in North America but I felt like you did handle that as a as a white guy (laughs) I felt like you did handle that that tension well did you 
did you feel from Charlene that that she felt out of place sometimes? That she didn't feel like she was part of the quote unquote mainstream society? Yeah, in more ways than one. But as as far as the um the Anishinaabe part, like yeah, I mean she was called half breed in school as a child and she definitely, you know, had kids make fun of her and and felt that hmm. racism, I guess. Even if it's not explicit, I still hear jokes and conversations and things like half-breed and uh, red skin and things like that. How did you, did you struggle to navigate that with your, your conservative Mennonite community? For me, like, I didn't really, I wasn't prejudiced against Native people, but maybe just prejudiced against people who did certain things or lived a certain lifestyle and I had certain stereotypes about worldly people perhaps or something Mm. like that and Shirley broke my stereotypes because I got to know her as an individual and I think it works the same way somewhat when um, you're talking about racism first just the way someone is born like maybe as an indigenous person Um, maybe if we can just bring up a real story of somebody that we know and their experience and help others to see them as a real individual person, not as a stereotype. That's one thing, one way that we can help. I feel like if someone's saying something racist, you shouldn't be the one that's worried about being a jerk in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) um, I like to assume that if people make comments, off-color comments, that they're doing it out of ignorance, not... um, like hatred or pre- prejudice. Yeah, and, so and I, I do the same thing, Emily. Try to but them. Yeah, oh, I do the same thing, but when I try to correct or bring some like perspective, it's it's usually shut down and rejected pretty hard. Okay, like, so I haven't had that experience. Okay. I might just know different types of people than you did. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the most recent one, I was in this conversation where someone was telling me... Um, that the Civil War was about states' rights, not about racism. And mm-hmm. so I was like, well, actually, that's not true. You know, if you read the reasons people seceded or states seceded from the Union, it's very clear in what they wrote that it was due to racism. And she's like, oh, that's weird. How come I was always told it was about states' rights? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, the states wanted the right to make decisions about slavery for themselves. They didn't want it to be a national thing. And she was just like, yeah. oh, that's so interesting. I never had heard that before. And so that's why I probably tend to have an optimistic view is because usually, <laughs> it's maybe going to make me sound so like the obnoxious person who just has all the right answers. But I feel like usually if I do correct people without saying, like, without insinuating that they're stupid, that they usually is just Is that like, my oh, problem? Okay. Maybe that is, I don't know. I don't know what your problem is. But it could just be the types of people because I know, you know, there was, there was this group of teenagers I knew, not in Oregon, but when I was young, that told me all kinds of wild, crazy things that they believed about slavery, like mm-hmm. not being that bad or whatever. And at the time, I didn't really have the knowledge to correct them. Like, I tried a little bit, but they knew way, like, they'd studied it more than I had at the time. Um, but even looking back on it now, I don't think that they would have been 
Like they were pretty set in their opinions. And I just, I eventually just left because I had no interest in yeah. being friends with them anymore at that point. There's a sense in which you need to kind of read the situation. But Lucy, your, your focus on, I was going to say your focus on humanizing someone who is different um, really does provide an example. But I, I hesitate to even say humanizing because I feel like there's a sense in which you were both humanizing each other and you were both on a journey toward yes. each other's cultures. She went to your church and um, you went to her powwows. Yeah, there was a real sense when, when that is true, yes. I think mm. she, <laughs> she actually, interestingly enough, I mean, again, not to equate Mennonite with, with a native person, like you said, it's not the same history at all, but she had some things that she didn't, <laughs> she didn't think the Mennonites did right. And she was like, that's mm-hmm. stupid. You know, she, she, she just didn't, it didn't make sense to her. But I think one time she told me, you know, um, she was talking about how she grew up half breed and the kids always made fun of her. And I'm like, and she's always felt different. You know, she grew up feeling different. I said, yeah, you know, I know how that feels. I kind of know how that feels, Mm -hmm. you know, because people, people look at me and they don't always, you know, sometimes they just see a Mennonite and she, yeah. And she, she got that, like she understood that. And I think it helped her accept me. Hmm. So that was sort of an interesting connection. Yeah. And that's really, uh, sort of Sermon on the Mount kingdom approach where Jesus welcomes those who mourn. He he welcomes the poor in spirit. He welcomes those who are persecuted and says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. You're inheriting the earth. Yeah, and I just really loved that perspective. I think a lot of, um, you know, let's humanize the other type of books are presented with like one normal person and one strange person, you know, and, and you're both strange. You're both strange. I mean, okay, to me, it's like a normal person and a strange person because I'm also Mennonite. But it was very much that dynamic of I think she has a strange culture and she thinks I have a strange culture, and we're humanizing each other. And I really, really loved that. It's amazing to me how when things were incredibly awkward. And nobody would have faulted you for stepping back and saying, oh, dear, I can't do this. I need to maintain my testimony or whatever. You you actually leaned in. Now, maybe maybe reluctantly and maybe not perfectly, but you, you leaned in. There, there's a quote here. Um, you, you describe your experience with Charlene and you say, inside, I'm ready to explode. For the past month, I have eaten Charlene and drunk Charlene until Charlene leaks from my pores and dribbles out of my nostrils. And she is eternally finding more things for me to do. Now, I assume that this was hyperbole. And, e- and even so, I know that feeling. I-, I know how overwhelming and exhausting walking with someone who is genuinely needy can be. And part of, a big part of your story in the second half of the book is working that out. I guess the I guess the the popular term now would be boundaries. Again, without giving too much of your book away, can you talk about some of that journey in giving so much to Charlene and then recognizing you needed to also care for yourself, but finding a way to still show love and be loved by her? Yeah, that was definitely not something that I feel like I navigated well. Um, my dad <laughs> stepped in and helped me 
maybe take more time, more space that I needed for myself because I have never been a person that's good at setting boundaries. And to this day, I, I'm not, I think I've gotten better, but I can't say that I'm good at it. And so I've maybe looked to the people around me, um, the people that love me to, to, to tell me, you know, this is, you need a boundary here. And, um, tried to pay attention to those. Yeah. In the Sermon on the Mount, it actually says you're blessed when people misuse you. You're blessed when people mistreat you. And this can be way misconstrued and abused. But I find in myself this tension of like wanting to have healthy boundaries and self-care and all this, while at the same time saying Jesus actually calls us to be taken advantage of. Is that putting it too strongly? That That Jesus actually says it's okay for us to be taken advantage of? No, I mean, that is, <laughs> that's a huge question that I've, I don't have all the answers to because that's, that's a tension that I have tried to work out in different relationships in my life. Um, I think part of it is um, making sure that you have, I, I guess my dad used to say, you know, you need a, you need your home base is covered. You need to have a, a, a place where you are whole and healthy before you are able to reach out and help others. And so if you are at a place where you, your health, your mental health or whatever, your emotional health is being destroyed, then you're at a place where you're not in a place to help other people. So then you have allowed your boundaries to, um, to be too open, I guess, or, or too mm-hmm. used in a way mm-hmm. that's no longer. And we can actually um, try to manipulate other people by being nice to them. You know, like, <laughs> I want to make you become this person or I want to get this certain response from you, so I'm going to be nice to you, so you'll be nice to me. And that's actually can be manipulation as well, so we need to recognize that. I agree with everything you just said, wholeheartedly agree. And I also want to add that I think um, another reason boundaries are super important is because there's a lot of people who we can help. And if the people who are trampling our boundaries are the only ones who are getting help, that's not fair to the people who need help but aren't willing to trample boundaries for it. So I think if we set boundaries with the boundary tramplers that frees up time and energy to help people who may not always know how to ask for it or mm-hmm. may not be willing to trample over our boundaries to get it. In the end, Lucy, you didn't have any perfect pat answers for any of these tensions you brought out so beautifully in your book, but you, you showed a, a path anyhow, at least one path. Another thing that, was, that I really appreciated about your book was the value of words. Now you're an author, of course, you're a writer, but I mean the words that Charlene said to you and you shared back. It was it was really powerful to hear some of that. Y- you said that Charlene said at one point, I love him, talking about a family member. I love him, but I just don't like him. <laughs> and you also talked about how at one point when she said, I love you, that you felt like, oh, let me read this. Um, you said, You felt like my mouth had been uttering ancient mystical incantations of which I know nothing. So this idea of speaking love, but actually meaning it too and working it through is a very biblical concept. We could go to, you know, first John. But do you want to talk about 
about how to develop uh, more honesty and thoughtfulness, but also more boldness in how we use our words to encourage each other, to challenge each other? Hmm. So that's a really big question. Developing more honesty and thoughtfulness and also more boldness. Um, I think um, that no matter what we're speaking, you know, honesty is important, but we can speak honesty redemptively, and that's also important. And, you know, if, if the nice words aren't true words, then they shouldn't be said. <laughs> but when we can honestly speak um, encouraging words, and there are always encouraging words if we look for them into people's lives, that, you know, that can make such an impact. I don't know why it's so hard to say I love you to people or to truly tell people how much they mean to you. I don't know why it's hard, but for some reason it is. But there's such power in that. I'm just saying very obvious things. But it's obvious, but like, it's still hard to do. I don't know why. I almost wonder if if it should be seen as a discipline, like a spiritual discipline to speak true and loving words of encouragement to each other. Like, I don't, this is awkward. I don't know if I really feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyhow because this is what the Bible says to do and I want to develop this discipline in my life. That makes sense to me, yeah. So you do some things that um, I actually really wrestled with when I was first working with um, the Ojibwe school, like attending powwow or being given tobacco to offer to the Magiziwag, the Eagle Spirits. Um, and and you, you give this really interesting juxtaposition where you talk about you didn't stand at a powwow where they asked where they were honoring the vets and you didn't stand for that. And yet you were at a, a mega church, is that right? And you did stand for the honoring or the baptism of a vet in that case. I feel like a lot of these situations are questions people from conservative backgrounds such as myself ask, like, I, I don't want to do the wrong thing and, you know, accidentally be, you know, possessed by a demon or, you know, deny Christ in front of all these people. How did you navigate that? That is, it's hard, maybe that's hard for someone that grows up in a certain way of doing things or maybe a very sheltered background like I did to step out of that and feel comfortable. Like you just, you feel awkward. It's just how it is. When I'm in a situation where I'm not sure if I'm comfortable, um, I, 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 I look at myself as before God, like, you know, what does God think about this? Is this something I can do with a good conscience? Or is this just, you know, if it's just the way I grew up, it's just a certain way of practicing or a certain tradition or a certain, oh, I've never done this thing. Well, you know, I'm okay with stepping around that. But if it's something that's like, you know, I I want to make a stand here because this is something I feel in myself that I want to do to honor God or not do to honor God, then that's the distinction that I would make. So it's a personal thing, I guess. But it's not primarily about what will other people think as much as it what's, what's God going to think about this. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm not in a, you know, who cares what I do, right? I mean, you know, I mean, maybe depending on the situation, like um, you mentioned standing like at the church, mega church I stood and that, you know, I was conscious of, well, everybody else is standing. And so I want to stand as well. And then then I felt 
guilty and that that's still to this day I don't know <laughs> I mean I don't know that one was the right choice and the other wrong because mm-hmm. I, you know I, I just did then later at the powwow I'm like well you know I don't think I should stand that's not consistent with what I believe but then that felt bad you know it felt like mm-hmm. I was being disrespectful so I don't know that I <laughs> I don't know what I would do now <laughs> Oh, goodness. I read that part of the book and I was like, I don't know what I would have done either. I honestly, like, I, I felt like I was you in that moment. Like I would have probably just sat and then regretted it later. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So when it comes down to it, I feel like what I took away from the book was one person's experience of engaging in, in a gospel-centered way with someone who is different rather than engaging somebody to bring them to the gospel you engaged with them in a gospel centered way and this book this was um how long ago were you were you friends with Charlene so it would have been about 10 years ago i guess yeah i just think it was a getting close and and you were single you were going to college you were living in wisconsin and now years later um not that many years later but <laughs> years later you you're married, you have a baby, and you're living on the East Coast. What are you doing now to kind of continue that, what you modeled so beautifully in the book, to live an open life that's centered around the gospel that invites people in? So I don't know. Right now, I'm I'm really, um, you know, I, I have a three-month-year-old daughter, and it's taken a lot of my energy for the last month, three months, just to care for her. And I'm still getting to know this community. I so often can just kind of like pull in the latch strings, if you will, and be with my family, be with my little church community, which is all great. And and for seasons, it's necessary, right? I'm wrestling myself with, with how do I engage and how can we engage more effectively? That's a really good question. Um, one thing I love about Oakland, which I'm just getting to know this community, is I feel like the Christians here from different denominations are do great at mingling and supporting each other, even though they're not part from the uh, part of the same denomination. And I love that about this community. But um, so far, the people that I've gotten to know are Christian. You know, whatever denominations mm-hmm. they're from, and I would like to make that broader um, and you know reach out into circles where people are not so familiar with the Bible and not so not churchgoers. And that's something that I hope develops and I develop some deeper connections here in Oakland. There's a lot I could say on this topic, but I just have distilled it down to one thing, which is I think everyone at some point in their life should stick themselves in a situation where they are the outsider and they are the ones that doesn't don't fit in. I think sometimes even if you experience that, then you will have an easier time noticing the people in your community that are the outsiders. Whereas if you've always belonged, it's really hard to even notice those people and even mm-hmm. think to talk to them. Yeah, I think that's something you talked about in your book, Emily. Placing ourselves in the place in in the position of being the outsider, which is what I'm afraid of, and I think a lot of us are afraid of is how we we find the people that Jesus calls us to. Jesus didn't call call us to those who are well. He calls us to those who are sick. And until we place ourselves, I think, in Hebrews, right, outside the camp with Jesus, we might not actually find those people. 
So thanks for joining us and um, just want to give a shout out. Do you have a, a website that we can, um, we should look up and follow you on, Lucy? Yeah, my website is lucindajkinsinger.com. So it's my name. Mm-hmm. And your um, book is Turtle Heart. Yes, and that's right. we can find that on Amazon or do you have a preferred vendor? It's, it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can also order directly um, from me. Um, just look me up on my website. But yes, it's available on Amazon. Great. And Emily, let's give a plug for you too. Um, yes, you can go to my blog, emilysmucker.com. Um, or if you're interested in ordering my book, which came out last November, you can go to muddycreekbooks.com. Or there is an ebook on Amazon as well. Very good. So much eponymousness going here. <laughs> emilysmucker.com and lucindajkinsinger.com. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time. That Jesus Podcast is part of the Kingdom Outpost Podcast Network. For more podcasts, articles, and other resources, go to kingdomoutpost.org.